we would be honored if you would join us. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dungeon Crawlers, where we are excited to have uh, our guest on the show tonight. We have an amazing uh, guest that has written books in the world of Dune, in the world of, well, one of my favorite worlds, Star Wars, uh, has written a, a book on one of my favorite superheroes. Um, well, it, it's related to my one of my favorite superheroes. So the last days of Krypton with, uh, you know, in the Superman universe. And more importantly, we're going to be talking about his more recent fantasy trilogy, uh, which is The Wake of Dragons with the latest and third book, which is Gods and Dragons, Mr. Kevin J. Anderson. So thanks for being on the show. Glad to be on, guys. Happy to sit here in my in my nice basement while you guys are in your own rooms and we're we're all nicely safe and interacting with each other and keeping as happy and imaginative as we possibly can. Yes. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of something that, that's really interesting. You've kind of dabbled a little bit in various other sandboxes as well as your own uh, world creation. So, so what is that like being able to, you know, play in other people's sandbox, but at the same time, create your own universes uh, as a writer? Well, you know, it's sort of something I've been preparing for since I was maybe like six years old or something when I started to become a junior fanboy. And I was watching, you know, monster movies and science fiction cinema, and I was reading comic books. And and I just fell in love with, um, I was young enough to enjoy Lost in Space, the original one. And then I got into Star Trek and and I just, I lived these things. I I I lived at lived in a small town in Wisconsin, and so there was like no other nerdy friends around. That there were no no other geeks, no other comic fans, nobody else who read science fiction and fantasy. And so I had all my imaginary friends who were like the the characters in the books that I got from the library and uh, the TV shows that I would watch. And I remember like when I was a I think it was a freshman in high school when I first picked up this book called The Hobbit that was on the uh, on the little spinner rack in the high school library. And I remember reading The Hobbit and I just was wanted to explode because I loved it so much. And I just wanted to talk to people about it, but everybody else around me was like farmers and they wanted to know about the football score and things. And they just had no interest in little short guys with hairy feet. And, and so I kind of had to go into my own world of just making up my own stories and I read the book Dune when I was 11 years old and it just fell in love with this this huge universe and the sandworms and ecology and politics and religion and and uh, did I say sandworms I mean that this is <laughs> this is what I really got into and I started making up my own stories and the first thing that I uh, I mean getting into Star Trek which ran for three seasons and they talked about the five-year voyage of the, the Starship Enterprise. And, you know, as this ninth grade kid, I thought, well, there's two more years. Somebody should make up these stories. Of course, I was totally clueless that there was any other Star Trek fiction or any other. Yes. So I filled up like five spiral notebooks of just handwritten. These are my own episodes of, of Star Trek. And I wrote them over and over again. And then um, I, I got this idea that, oh, well, these are really good. And maybe if I typed them up, I'd publish them somewhere. And so I wrote a letter. I, I don't know how I tracked this down or, or found it out, but I wrote a letter to um, uh, Paramount uh, tracking down like Gene Roddenberry saying, hi, I'm oh. this kid. And I wrote a bunch of Star Trek stories and can I publish them? And I waited like 
three months. I got a letter back and the letter's from Paramount Studios and I open it up and it says like, no. no. And, <laughs> and, and so I went, I was really crushed and I went, well, but these are a bunch of really good stories. So I made up my own series, uh, you know, my own spaceship and my and a whole different story where like Earth was going to blow up and this alien race came with their ships and rescued the human race and and uh, then they went from star uh, star system to star system and and had all the thinly veiled adventures that my Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy did. So I just, I started out writing Star Trek fiction and then I made it into my own fiction. And I, I've never ever stopped being a fanboy. And I, I really and truly did go see Star Wars in the movie theater the first week it came out. Heck when, yes. nobody knew, when nobody was knew it was cool. And I was like, oh, science fiction movie. I'm going to go see this. And, and I was in like this little, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, this little, you know, like mall sixplex movie theater thing. And I went with a couple of buddies of mine and, you know, there were like four people in the theater and we watched it. And, and I kind of get excited when I'm trying to convey this stuff for, for um, most of your audience. I'm, I'm 59. So most of your audience is, is probably younger than that. And what you have to remember when when you're when people like me sat in Star Wars in the movie theater for the first time, when that roll up came through, those words that go dwindling off into the universe, yeah. nobody had ever seen anything like this before. Oh. And then after those words go by, then the blockade runner zips past, and you're going, "Whoa, that was pretty cool!" And then the Star Destroyer comes, and it keeps coming and keeps coming, and um. You know, you've all seen it and everybody knows this now, but it's hard to grasp the impact that this had in the movie theater. This was like nobody ever saw this. This is like, um, so I'm getting even older now. And again, you won't, <laughs> you won't understand the impact. But in The Wizard of Oz, when it's all black and white and then Dorothy opens up the yes. door and it's Technicolor Oz on the other yeah. side of it, like that was what it was like. That yeah. Star Wars was like the color version on the other side of the black and white version. And, and then later on, when the Millennium Falcon goes into hyperspace for the first time and all the stars elongate at you, mm -hmm. I mean, we've all seen that a million times. Star Trek does it all the time. Everybody does it. But the first time you see it, you go, whoa. And, you know, <laughs> this, it, it's hard to describe the impact that, that this had. And so, you know, I love Star Trek, but I was writing my own fantasy trilogy at the time because I got this letter from Paramount saying, kids, you can't write in somebody else's universe. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of stories and I published them and, and I eventually got my first novel published and then a, a fantasy trilogy published and, and some high-tech hard science fiction stuff published. And, and you know, I, I was building up my own career and then I got a call out of the blue from my editor at Bantam Books saying, Kevin, do you like Star Wars? Do you want to write three sequels to it? And it was just like full circle. Wow, of course I want to do this. And at the time, I mean, there, there wasn't a Star Wars line. I, I think Timothy Zahn had published his very first one. Yeah. And, and it, there was Star Trek books every month, but there weren't any Star Wars books. Right. And I was one of the very first people who got asked to write Star Wars books. And... Um, you know, took me a nanosecond to go, sure, I'd love to do that. And then I wrote the Jedi Academy trilogy, which got me on the New York Times bestseller list and got me a whole bunch more work with Lucasfilm. And then that turned into work at 
the X-Files and Batman and Superman. And, and then I kind of really got connected with uh, one of my very best friends, Brian Herbert, and we have been exploring the sandbox of the Dune universe for, for quite a while now. So that's so amazing. There, that's my life story. We did it in five minutes or less. And well, that's fantastic. Thank you for being on the show. We've really enjoyed having you here. <laughs> I, this was faster than I thought. Great. So actually, if, if we get back up a little bit, uh, if we get back up just a little bit, I, I don't know if you if you've had a chance to listen to the show, but essentially Alton is my spare time, you mean, and all of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And all, as, as you're writing words, you're listening to other words that have nothing to do with your words. It, it, it's great. It works out wonderful. <laughs> um, uh, so Alton is like our game design guru. Daniel is our resident author and literary expert. And I'm the movie and video game guy. So in other words, I'm the dumb one. No, um, so I- no, You're so not. I'm the film guy. I'm not the dumb one. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Who, no, we'll ask that question other episode. You just edit that part but, out and make yourself sound smart. Take that one out. Um, <laughs> no, leave everything in. Always leave everything in. Okay, so here we go. Uh, I was really curious as you were talking about, you know, you read Dune by Frank Herbert when you were 11. And then in 1985, uh, David Lynch releases Dune as a cinematic experience right. with an incredible cast. It's epic in scope. The production value is through the roof, especially for its time. Um, I hate to say it that way. I mean, I was a kid during that time, but yeah. Uh, the point is, first, did you see Dune in theaters in 1985? Absolutely. And in fact, I, I still have, it's not in good condition, but when, I'm going to fill in some more background. So Dune, uh, the, re the recent movie that just came out, did a much better job as far as like, filling in the details and kind of showing instead of telling you all this background stuff that they needed. Mm -hmm. But when I went to see the David Lynch Dune movie in the theaters, when you walked in, they had somebody standing there at the door and they would tear off a sheet of paper. They handed you a two sided sheet of paper that had all of the terms on it that you were supposed to read while the previews were on so that you knew what the Bene Gesserit were and you knew what the Harkonnens were and you knew what mm. Spice was and Navigators and and uh, and I still have that sheet, I kept it. And it, it's, you were supposed to read this so that you knew what was going on in the movie before the movie started. I had no idea that was a thing. I didn't either. It wasn't very effective, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did they have like melange and weirding yeah, they did, they did. and they, they did they had like the Bene Gesserit and they were trying to explain all of this stuff and then if you remember the David Lynch movie it opens up with Princess Irulan saying yes before the movie starts I'm gonna like explain a whole bunch of things to you and yeah then we go on um and so I, I guess one of the things that I want to get to is that um in the years since David Lynch did his movie science fiction has become so much more mainstream that they don't have to explain something like yeah. floating space. They don't have to explain, oh, desert planet. I mean, they, they don't have to explain all these things that us science fiction people kind of get. Where, I mean, it's like, they don't have to explain, here's what a computer does, young man. You know, that, that's, <laughs> that, so they can, they can assume the audience understands a lot more which makes it easier to to tell a really big movie story like that. Um, yeah. But yes, I did I did see the David Lynch one, and 
and I had read the book so much and, and was, in fact, I believe at that time, we were only up to God Emperor of Dune or maybe Heretics of Dune was out. I'm, I can't remember which of the, the books was out by, and maybe Heretics was already out then. Um, but I'd read these books and, you know, the Lynch movie, um, I guess Frank Herbert called it a visual feast. I mean, they're like big, great stuff to look at in there. Um, I kind of wish they had followed the story a little bit better. Um, and as, as a Dune fan watching at the end of the David Lynch movie, when the happy ending is that Paul makes it rain across the desert and I'm going, but, but that'll kill all the sandworms and <laughs> kind, of, kind of ruined the whole thing for me. But yeah. that movie just exploded a whole new readership and fan base for Dune. And like a million people bought Frank Herbert's novel because of that movie. And you know, anything that gets people to read the original thing is, is, uh, is a good thing to me. You know, I, I, I don't mean to like oversell the issue, if you will, but it's been my opinion for a while that Frank Herbert's Dune is to sci-fi as Tolkien's uh, Fellowship of the Ring is to fantasy. Oh, absolutely. There, there's no comparative, in my mind, there's no similar novel in science fiction that that blasted open so many doors that, uh, I mean, remember when Dune came out, it was like unpublishable because it was long and complicated. Yeah. <laughs> that that um, nobody, nobody bothered with, I mean, you had, you had cave women and dinosaurs on Venus while rocket men, rocket ships landed. And I mean, that's what pulp science fiction was. And then Frank mm -hmm. Herbert comes in with this detailed, dense world building and, there's there's economics in it and there's there's religion and philosophy and uh, i mean religion beyond the great god zonbar that you have to steal the jewel from his eye and stuff like that that this is deep complicated stuff and and when i read that book it was i mean i've been reading stacks of andre nortons and edgar rice burroughs and isaac asimov and and dune was like whoa this is this is graduate level stuff instead and and it just made me see the potential of science fiction about how how big and how complex it could be. Absolutely. I I want to shift gears here for just a second. So let's now, you know, you told us about how you got into writing because you were creating your own Star Trek stories and which is, uh, which is amazing, by the way, that, that's pretty fantastic. You were forced to then take that world that belonged to someone else and make it your own and then over over time, uh, you end up publishing your own uh, works from like your own world building and your own your own IP, right? Your own megaverse. Uh, and now we have Wake the Dragon. Tell us how you got. Uh, tell us where that inception came from. Like, how did you get to that point where you're like, oh my gosh, I have a trilogy of fantasy and I know how to do it. Well, I mean, I I had committed several trilogies before that, so it wasn't like a, a brand new thing for me. But I it's a big epic fantasy for me. And I, my background has been mostly in uh, giant science fiction. And in fact, my, probably my most successful and most well-known non-media stuff uh, is my saga of seven sons. It's kind of like the expanse. It's well, it's seven novels in the first series. And then there's another trilogy that was nominated for the, uh, the a book was nominated for the Hugo award in there. Um, that was, 
that was my love letter to science fiction, this huge epic story with the 50 main characters and all these planets and, and solar systems at war and alien races and, and killer robots and all kinds of stuff like that. So I just poured everything into that. And, and again, it was seven books long. And then when I finished that seven books, I wrote a fantasy trilogy about sailing ships and sea monsters called the Terra Incognita trilogy, because I just, I love science fiction, but I wanted to, you know, shift gears and, and do uh, fantasy. And, you know, fantasy is actually, there are some hard science fiction writers that will sort of poo-poo fantasy and go, oh, you just make everything up. And go, well, you know, fantasy is actually a lot harder when you're doing sailing ships, you got to figure out well, how, how do they navigate and how do they know where they are? And, and, and you know, in Star Trek, they just scan the planet and you know where the map is. Um, <laughs> I love in Star Trek where they go, where they're, they're looking down on this entire planet going, Captain, I see one life form. And I'm like, well, it's not a very good ecosystem if you're seeing one life form <laughs> on this planet. Um, I, I digress. Anyway, uh, fantasy, you have to, like, do they have gunpowder? Do they have I mean, how do they communicate? Do they have the printing press? There's all kinds of things that is just assumed in a futuristic science fiction series. And so that was really a big challenge. I did tons of historical research on, on um, the age of exploration and Prince Henry the Navigator and Bosco da Gama and all that sort of stuff and, and the legend of Prester John. And then I finished that and I, and I, I actually, huge epic fantasy and uh, I did two rock CDs that were connected to it that I, I worked with a record producer and we wrote two rock CDs and some of my big um, rock star heroes from when I was, uh, well, still heroes of mine, uh, performed on my CDs. So that was kind of cool. And then I did another uh, sequel trilogy to the Saga of Seven Suns. So I went back to science fiction and killer robots and big planets and dimensional gateways and things. And after that, I just kept thinking, that I really liked the challenge of fantasy. I had, uh, in that time, I guess, I had read, gotten into the Sword of Truth series, and I read the entire, yeah. all of the books by Terry Goodkind, you know, all of these books. And so I was really primed to do a, a big epic fantasy. And, and of course, Game of Thrones, and I loved the TV series, and I, I loved the, the books that George Martin wrote. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do. I want to do as much world building as I could, history and culture and, and uh, ancient races. And um, so I wake the dragon. The first book is called Spine of the Dragon. And the second one is called Venge War, like Revenge War. And then the third one, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, is called Gods and Dragons. And it's big stories, but basically two continents at war, um, uh, humans who have hated each other for generations, basically like Christians and Muslims or uh, the US and the Soviet Union or you know, the age long enmities and they're always kind of clashing with each other. And then this ancient race comes back and they're sort of a powerful race. And what they wanna do is wake the dragon at the heart of the world and sort of a Noah's Ark thing to destroy the world and remake it into a better place. Well, the only problem is, is that that sort of kills all the humans on the planet. So uh, the humans decide that they're going, I mean, this is a whole bunch of different characters and they have to figure out how to work together so that they can be strong enough to prevent the destruction of the world. But then we also have characters from the elder race whose entire reason for being is to wake the dragon and to make a better world. And there's, there's magic and there's giant dragons and there's, you know, 
big powerful big powerful sorcery and i just some of my best characters are in here this is probably some of my absolute best world building that i've ever done because i just like all this detail is real to me and they're they're big epic complicated books and like i said the third one just came out two weeks ago so i'm i am proving that some big epic fantasy writers can actually deliver and, and finish a trilogy when they say they're going to. So <laughs> readers, it is all done. You can start it, start to finish. Spine of the Dragon, Venge War, and Gods and Dragons. Get all three of them and uh, and finish the story. And don't worry, I kill off everybody at the end, so there won't be more. <laughs> and for those uh, of you that are thinking, hey, maybe I should wait. No, just go get it. Uh, I, I love the fact there are dragons in here um, and you have detail. And that's definitely something... Uh, you know, sometimes you feel like when you're getting these big epic books that sometimes details are left off to the side or there's some plot holes, things like that. Um, I mean, all the books I've read of yours, it just seems like from beginning to end, you're on the uh, wonderful ride. And by the end, you don't feel like there's something missing, that something got left out. All everything is tied together in a nice, beautiful bow at the end. Um and, and you've kind of delivered with this series too. Uh, well, I, you, I don't, you know, I've read some epic fantasies where they go, and and he stepped out the door of his cottage. Now I will give you the history of the entire world and then yes. go on for a hundred yeah. feet. Yeah. And, and that's not what I want. As I want you to learn the history of the entire world, but in the background, in bits and pieces, mm -hmm. as the characters are actually doing something as the story is taking place, as they're, you know, the old uh, show don't tell. So, so you know, um, like in the Fellowship of the Ring movie toward the end, where the, when uh, um, Frodo and I think, it, I think it's Frodo and Sam are, are sailing down the, the river and there's these giant weathered statues of ancient people, uh, uh, ancient kings or something. The Argonauts. Uh, and I, and they don't explain everything, but that just, shows you that there's a great history to this world yep. and now lord of the rings people don't go and yell at me because i don't remember the names i read i read it four times but the last time was quite a few years ago so. <laughs> no I, I think that's that that's where what's really great is when you're you're experiencing what's happening and what you know the future or the history and the world around that character and so as that character is learning it so are you instead of it being force-fed sometimes that's just so, it's like it gets boring and it pulls you out of the story a lot of times. I mean, I love Tolkien and uh, the Lord of the Rings books, but there's so many times where it's like, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, see, the last, the last time that, the last time that I read the Lord of the Rings, I did it on unabridged audio and unabridged oh, wow. audio means you have to listen to those 3,000 line long elven songs. And I'm going, oh, yeah. nobody ever reads those in the book. You just flip past them. And yep. so again, sorry, Lord of the Rings fans. I love the book, but there are parts <laughs> of it where I just kind of wanted to fast forward and get to the. Well, I, you know, and for what it was, I mean, it was visionary when it came out and it, it changed fantasy, but you're right. Nowadays, we know those things. And so we can kind of skip past those because we understand the tropes. We understand um you know what an elf is what a dwarf is and and an ent and so forth well so, and it's still and I'll, I'll i'll get you in a second krebs but the one of the things when i again i i read it in college and i just it just blew me away and i read it again when i was 25 and i read it again and i loved it so much but this 
this latest time that I read it, which was when the, the movies came out. So I yeah. went and reread it. I had not remembered how slow the pace was, mm. not just of the writing, but of the actual events in the story. Like, like um, Gandalf shows up at the beginning and just like sounds the 10, the, the 10 alarm fire and you got to destroy this ring of doom and you got to go there. And it is one year before Frodo decides to get off his butt and leave. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the Council of Elrond, when they're arguing what to do, um, if I remember right, it says in the text, they literally argue for three years. Oh my gosh. And I'm reading this thinking, Sauron, you deserve to win. Just, just go. <laughs> and, and like, I, I just keep going. Like, that kind of pacing would never work in our world oh no so if it's like somebody's got an atomic bomb and they're gonna they're gonna terrorist is gonna blow up the super bowl well let's have a council for three years and see what happens and and anyway that i'm off on a i'm off on a tangent there myself just because there were uh, i hadn't noticed that before but i'm reading this going like on with like the monty python on with it guys on with it. <laughs> well i mean it's just like the the tv series uh 24 i mean the whole season is in 24 hours. So, yeah. yeah. I, uh, Krebs, you, you wanted to say something. Yeah, go ahead. I do, and I still want to. Uh, you know, I, actually, I really appreciate that about your writing style, too. I was reading through, uh, as is common with this show, there are books that we have to, like, expose ourselves to and read, and you know, so we can have really cool interviews, and that's great. Uh, there was a book that I read in recent history where I found that the author could not help himself and kept repeating certain phrases and sentences over and over, and they were expository. And it was things like, but you told me this a chapter ago, like one chapter ago, you told me this, I already know this. And when I heard the same thing the fourth time, the fifth time, I was like, come on. And, and it, it got to a point where it felt insulting. It got like grating and then eventually insulting. And, uh, and that was, I was kind of sad about that because the rest of the content of the book was actually really engaging and I enjoyed it, but I hated being talked down to this, this uh, belief that somehow I'm going to forget world, like important world building details, you know, one chapter later. Uh, I, and, and to your earlier point about uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, Tolkien goes on for a dog's age for the length of a Bible about like the texture of the leaves in the trees and you know uh what flavor green it is and things like that um and i realize i i you know i realized his background i realized what the impetus for writing the book in the first place much like frank herbert when he submitted the manuscript they're like sir this is way too big that you 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 can't give us the story this too many big. notes too and many so they notes. yeah and so they had to like break it up into three stories right uh but what i like about what I like about your style, and for the record, this is, I admit, this is my first Kevin Anderson novel that I started reading. So I'm reading the third book out of the series. Yeah, I'm what? reading Gods and Dragons. I'm reading the third book. I was doing my homework for this I show. I hate you for that. <laughs> I know. Well, I hate me for that because I like the story from beginning to end. And so uh, I started reading it and I, I noticed two things. One is you don't think your audience is stupid. And I appreciate that Two is you have the reasonable expectation that if they're going to read book three, they've read books one and two. And so there are certain assumptions, but you also take a moment to just drop a little reminder 
of some little aspect of the world, but you, you're not ham-fisted about it. So I just wanted to say thank you for assuming the audience is not dumb, for assuming that the audience is smart enough to follow the story that you're weaving, the world that you're building. Thank you for doing that. Well, and one of the things that in my Seven Sons books, what I did, uh, and they, again, I'll kind of hammer home, I am always reliable. This was a seven book series. They came out every year on time, one book a year, the big fat years, the, the big fat books, they came out. But even so, if you read it and I've got 50 characters in there and you pick it up a year later, I think it's, it's arrogance on the author's part to assume everybody remembers every single character that's in my deathless prose. So I, in those books, I actually took the time and, and, and effort to write a, the story so far, which is like a three page, here's kind of a cliff notes of what, what happened in the, the couple of books before or up to the series. Um, those are hard. Those are really hard <laughs> to do. Because if I could write it in three pages, I wouldn't have just given you 600 pages. <laughs> and, but, but I do, you know, it, it's like the scenes from last week's episode before you're, you're watching a TV show. You kind of like the, I didn't forget it, but it's good to just have a little reminder. In the Wake the Dragon trilogy, though, I just, I, I just couldn't do it. It is so hard to, uh, to just boil it all down that I did try to drop in um, little hints in the prose to remind you. Um, now about the author you were just talking about who, who added these, these things over and over again, it, it may not have been that he or she thought you were stupid, that they might uh, have been writing it and going, did I remind them of this yet or not? And, <laughs> and, and it just didn't get edited out. That's the kind of thing where test readers and stuff should go through and have exactly your reaction and say, uh, you've told me this five times already, you don't need to keep saying it. And I, the author go, thank you for helping me clear out this Deadwood because remember, I've got this all in my head. And so if I see it on the paper, I'll go, oh, of course that phrase is in there, but I don't remember that I put that phrase the chapter before, because I just knew it had to be in there somewhere. So I might as well put it in five times to make sure. Well, you know, that that is a fair uh, and somewhat gracious assumption, actually. I, I think that that's very fair uh, because, uh, you know, authoring a book, as you and Daniel well know, is no small feat. It's extremely challenging. I've had the fortune of being um, just uh, of functioning as a copy editor for a few of my friends who are published. And we do have conversations like this where it's like, now, did you mean to do this? Or uh, you went to inner monologue here, but this is not the right font that you, you know, it's not the same thing you used last time and things like that. And you're right. Like these little details do tend to slip through the cracks. Well, um, we've had with all these Dune books that I've written with Brian Herbert and they're prequels to Dune. And then we've done a couple of sequels to Dune and there are other different parts of the story and so when you're introducing um, a character from Dune and it's, it's uh, book two in the trilogy and I will count Fenring and then we just sort of do a little reminder of who count Fenring is. And we get some of these Dune fans who get upset saying they think we're idiots that we don't know who count Fenring is. I'm like, well, maybe you know who they are but maybe not every reader knows who they are. That's and right. If you know, then skip over that part. But if you don't know, you will appreciate the reminder. Now if I put the reminder in every single time I introduce the character, well, then that gets too much. But again, there, <laughs> there has to be a balance between 
um, reminding the reader enough without being annoying. And my whole philosophy of telling a story is you don't, you don't want to give the reader any excuse to pause in their reading. Like, who is that character again? I better go look it up in the glossary. Yeah, that's right. Because if that's you get right. to that point, you failed as a writer because they don't remember who your character is. Mm -hmm. And writing a glossary is uh, is a real bitch too. <laughs> Those are really hard. Those are really hard. You got to be careful not to. Oh, and this was the character who will later be murdered by his brother. Well, no, you don't want to put that in the glossary. And, um, so it, it's a real, you have to remind the reader enough and get them so that, um, so that they don't ever pause in their reading, that they want to keep going. And there's no, um, there, there's no like squirrel to distract them because you forgot to put in something. Well, and not only that, this may be the first book they've picked up. Maybe they didn't pick up book one or two. So who would do that, Daniel? Who would read the third book that. before the first two books? I don't. Who would do that? Who would do that? Gosh, just, dang it. I just admitted to that a few minutes ago. What? Well, no. <laughs> Edit it out. I I've got, so when, when Gods and Dragons came out, um, and I don't usually do this because it's sort of an exercise in, in, in sanity, but Gods and Dragons came out and it ended up like 50, the first few days had like 15 reviews and hooray, they're all five-star reviews and one three-star review. And the one three-star review says, this is confusing and it's hard to get into and I couldn't follow it. And then the next line is, it wasn't until I was halfway through the book that I realized this is book three in a trilogy and there were other books before this. <laughs> I'm going to hold this up. How <laughs> is that? Book yep. three on the yeah. cover. How hard is that to see? It's probably backwards the way you have it recorded. Uh, I don't know. The, well, but, no, the, those of you listening on the podcast, I want you to know that in the center third of the cover, on the left third, there is Plana's Day in high contrast font, Wake the Dragon, yeah. book three. It is not a tiny scroll at the bottom. It's not on the back. It's not on the inner leaf of the dust cover. No, it's, it's, it is center and left thirds right there plain as day well and it's also on the back cover and it's also in the book description and it's like yeah. the grand yes. finale of the trilogy well it doesn't take a lot of brain science to figure out that the grand finale of the trilogy means it's the third book of the trilogy but but i'm, 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 <laughs> venting, I'm venting about it and i know that there are people who might pick up book three and they might not realize it but not all of them are dumb enough to post a review saying I was really dumb and got halfway through this book before I realized it was book three. So yeah, if you're going to do that, don't give the author a bad review. I've also had people posting that I got a one-star review on this thing because the package was torn when Amazon yeah. delivered it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh. guys, get a clue. That has nothing to do with the book. I mean, I, I'm looking at Amazon right now and it says Gods and Dragon and then yeah, the title of the book is three. Gods and Dragons, yeah. Paren, Wake the Dragon, Book Three. Yeah. Yep. So, and that, below that, with the, 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 the ratings, it says Book Three of Three. I mean, I, I don't know how much clear. Barnes and Noble, same thing. I, yeah. I, uh, it, it's even doing a Google search. It says Book Three. Dungeon so, Crawlers Radio would like to remind you that Gods and Dragons is Book Three of the Wake the Dragon trilogy. <laughs> there it is. So I, I, you know, as an author, you don't, I don't usually pay attention to Amazon reviews and I'm not really going to go off on that. It's just one of those where kind of forehead slappers. And, yeah. and, and again, if you are, if you are that clueless, 
don't post a review telling anybody <laughs> that you're that clueless. Yeah. So true. But but what a good sign though that when you see a review that comes in and it's a low star and you read it and you're like, oh they're rating themselves in this process, not your book, right? Like how much of a relief it is that any review that is maybe on the lower side of the scale is not really about your story. It's about them having a negative experience with the real world, trying to read your story and it's actually their fault. Like that's, those are the best kinds of bad reviews to get. Yes. Well, we, we just write the best book that we can. And, and one of the things that, cause I've, totally different tangent, but we, I've had people, when the Dune movie came out, all these people started writing about, oh, how much I hated the novel Dune and how much I couldn't stand <laughs> Frank Herbert. I'm going, guys, it's the, probably the best selling science fiction novel of all time. And yeah. Really, yeah. So what that, what has taught me in all this time of writing in Dune and writing in Star Wars and writing in X-Files and all this stuff is that there there is no way to please everybody. There is somebody's going to hate your stuff. And it might be because they had an ex-boyfriend they hated that happens to have my same middle initial or something like <laughs> that. And, 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 you know, you just, you just write as much. I'm, we've got a bunch of, um, well, I mean, there, there's, there are these um, sort of dune trolls that just hate everything we do. And oh, I go, well, yeah. But, you know, we've got thousands of reviews on Amazon and it's a four and a half star rating on just about every single book that we published. And I'll, I'll live with thousands of reviews and four and a half star rating. And you know, so, so I, I, while you've been talking, I, I, I looked on Amazon, found that review, looked up the guy. I, I, he has another post on another book and he says, a really great ending to a series and still gave it a three star review. So, hey. <laughs> Now, um, I think I think that's good for you. Uh, yeah. yeah. So so at least he, he figured that. Well, I mean, we, we you can't. Okay, this is an important lesson because you probably have a lot of aspiring authors who are listening to this too. Do not obsess on your Amazon review. No. <laughs> you know, I just went on and on like that. Don't do not obsess on them. These are these are the people that also review the box of Fruit Loops that they bought that morning and yeah. and stuff. I mean, it's 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 nice. And I'm glad that they're that excited about it. Um, but, you know, enjoy you gotta, the book. And, and, you got to take it with a grain of salt. That, that you know, my very first book that got published, I got a one star on it, man. That it, was me. I'm sorry. It, it was, was, no, it wasn't you. But <laughs> the it, cover it was, was torn. It's gut punch. And man, I obsessed about it for like weeks. And then, you know, uh, one of my good friends just told me like, what does it matter? You have one that's that. The rest aren't, you know, they're they're four and five stars. So just let that one go. And well, my my favorite one that I've that I've cherished that I sort of use as an example is my my wife and I wrote a 14 book uh, series for Star Wars, a young adult series called The Young Jedi Knights. Uh, oh, wow. We wrote all all 14 of those books. And you know, there are a handful of snarky Star Wars people too. And you know, this is not at all typical of of Star Wars fandom, but there was like this one one letter that we got that was a, a review posted, and the guy it was book fourteen in the Young Jedi Knight series, and the guy gave it a one star and said this is an absolutely terrible book. It is just as bad as the other thirteen books that I hated with a passion. Wow! So he read all fourteen <laughs> books. Wow! Oh, well, there's a little intelligence about. test for you, but. Yeah, well, hey, at least he got the sales from that. So, yeah. Well, and, and check them out for the library. Who knows? Yeah. Hey, well, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of like backpedal just a little bit here because uh, 
you've you've written books for Dune, you've written books for Star Wars, uh, you've written books for a number of universes that were not originally yours, but that you were invited into the family to create for, which I think is amazing. I think it's phenomenal. Uh, how does that differ in your experience from things like the Seven Suns saga and Wake the Dragon and uh, any of the other works that you've done that are entirely your world and does not come from an existing IP. How is that different? Like, is there like a, uh, is there like an increased sense of responsibility? Is there, are there certain checks and balances in place? Like how, how was, what's that experience differential like? Well, I mean, it's, it's harder in a lot of sense. And you know what, I guess what I just realized and the irony of it when you're talking is that, so I'm, I'm writing Star Wars books and I love the Star Wars movies, but then I'm, but when you write a Star Wars book, of course, I have to get everything approved by, well, I haven't worked for Disney, but when I was working on it, right. it was like Lucasfilm. That's and right. when I did the X-Files, the X-Files people had to approve everything. And DC Comics had to approve everything in the last days of Krypton and the Enemies and Allies, the Batman Superman book that I did. And all of these things, you have to go through and get somebody else to approve it. And now I'm writing the wake the dragon trilogy and that's my own stuff and i have all this freedom and you know what i would really love the most is to sell it as a big budget movie and we could get it out in the, in the <laughs> movie screens right so you we always want to expand our audience and you know most most authors want to um see their stuff on the big screen or on television and i back when uh star trek deep space nine was first being produced um, I was one of the authors. I flew to Hollywood and I went into all their studios and I pitched to Deep Space Nine. I read some of their scripts and then I went in with a whole bunch of ideas and I'm pitching it. And I, and I go into uh, Michael Pillar's um, trailer and offices and I'm going to pitch uh, some Star Trek ideas. And I brought in a paperback book, one of my original science fiction books that I had published. And I brought it in to sort of like, see, here's my credential. And these people that are making Star Trek every week, which is what I'm desperately wanting to do, they took one look at my paperback science fiction book that I, I think paid me all of $10,000 for, for the whole thing. They took one look at that and they just went, ooh, ah, a real author, you published a book. And so it's, it's everybody's kind of the grass is always greener on the other side, but um, kind of got distracted from your question there. So what writing in again like i'm a fanboy i started out writing star trek star trek stories so it doesn't feel like a constraint to me it's just like okay i put on these lenses today and i'm going to look through a star trek universe and write a star trek story and when i'm writing uh gods and dragons it's in my own universe and it's my own characters <coughs> and i can kill them off whenever i want to and i can do the whole story and and really Gods and Dragons is the grand finale. This is the whole trilogy. I built it. Um, the reason why trilogies work so well is that it's three books. It's beginning, middle, and an end. And the end means it's done. You don't go, uh, Jason came back from uh, from camp. Um, oh, I forgot the name of the Crystal camp. Lake. Crystal Lake. Um, and, and we go on again. So Gods and Dragons, you should feel satisfied that all these storylines wrapped up and not everybody survived, but some of them had heroic deaths and some of them had nasty deaths and, and some of them changed the world and some of them saved the world. And, and when you're done with it, you should feel like, wow, that was a great ride and I'm really exhausted, but I'm going to kick back now because you delivered 
what we wanted to have. And um, and I, you know, in Star, Star Wars books, like the Jedi Academy trilogy was like that to me as well. I mean, it's still three books and the ends in the gigantic climax. And at the, at the end of Champions of the Force, you should be going, well, he wrapped everything up and I feel satisfied. And that was a great Star Wars adventure. And um, it just, I don't really look at it as one thing or another. It's they're all telling stories and, and some of them are mine and some of them are um, playing with somebody else's toys. You know, and, and on that wise, I was thinking about this because usually I consider myself a fairly, you know, loquacious individual who can express one's his own ideas in a way that is acceptable to all listening. That's the way I like to think of myself. And then I say stuff like, uh, what's it like making your own stories instead of working with somebody else's? Like, that's not really what I mean. What I really mean is, what I really mean is like, I, I totally acknowledge that your Young Jedi Knight series, that is your story. That is your contribution to the Star Wars universe. Uh, just as much as the trilogy that you've just recently completed is your contribution to like all of fantasy, just as much as the Seven Sons, just as, you know, all of your original works are just as original as the works that you did for other existing IPs. But I imagine there has to be, like you were saying, there, there are checks and balances. There are like people who have to approve that your story is I, I, what acceptable. I, I, that doesn't feel like the right word that, that, that it's, that it's uh, approved. Like, how do you, what's the word there for that? Well, you know, when, when you're working, say when I'm working on with Lucasfilm on Star Wars, we are all like working for the same company with the same product. It's like if, if I were on, not that writing is like an assembly line, but if I were working in the, the Chevrolet auto plant, I can't decide to do my, I'm going to put five wheels on this car. I mean, this, you're, you're building this vehicle that has right. somebody else's brand on the front of it. And Lucas, you know, that, that's not a good example because writing a Star Wars book is not like building a car in an assembly line. But, but this is George Lucas's Star Wars. This, is, this was his, you know, it's Disney's now, but let's, let's not go into that direction. Of it. But, <laughs> but, um, and I didn't, I didn't mean an insult by that. I'm just basically saying that this is, he brought me aboard to work on his team um, if you were a football player that you're going to be playing for the, the Denver Broncos, well, you're going to want the Denver Broncos to win. You're not doing a, you're not Tiger Woods playing your own golf game. You're, you're part of a team. And when you're working in Star Wars, like uh, when we would put our, our outlines through and somebody at various people at Lucasfilm would check them, there were other considerations that I wasn't necessarily privy to like they were planning to sell um, action figure rights or micro machine rights to something or other. And, and um, one of the other Star Wars authors at the time uh, was Steve Perry. And he did, there's this whole project called Shadows of the Empire where it was yep. a, a game and it was a soundtrack and there was a novel and there were comics and it was all interconnected. And um, I, I was talking with Steve and he was, um, he was amused and he did what he what he needed to do, but he had his whole story set up 
But apparently the um, Kenner action figures wanted to do sort of a, a, a version of Chewbacca that had a, a mohawk haircut and an eye patch. And they said, Steve, write the scene where Chewbacca has a mohawk haircut and an eye patch because we want it to tie in with our action figure. So Steve had to write something where he and Han, Chew Han Solo, well, no, it wasn't Han Solo. It was just Chewbacca. It was, with, it was Kyle Katarn, if I remember okay. correctly. Yeah, because Han Solo was in Carbonate at, during the time of that. Yeah. So, so it was a, um, he did something where Chewbacca had to go under disguise. He shaved his hair and wore an eye patch and that's how we fit in with the action figure. And you know, if you're a good writer, you figure out how to do that. If you're a prima donna, you go, I will never besmirch my art by having Chewbacca wear an iPad. <laughs> well, then you're probably not the person who should be um, working on that. So, well, you know, on, on that wise, was there a moment when you were in any of your series where, um, where you were writing for an existing IP, was there ever a moment where there was something you knew was critical to the story? It was something you desperately wanted to do and they either told you no or change it? Well, there's one that I really, really wanted to do. And in my secret heart, this is the true history, but I came up with the full background of the race of the Ewoks and why they were so cute and acted like teddy bears. And I had the whole reason for it. And it all made perfect sense because as a Star Wars fan, I was just myself a little bit annoyed at these cutesy teddy bear people in a very serious situation. <laughs> and so, so I... I kept working on it. I did this entire elaborate thing where that that the Ewoks were were bred to be cute. They were like pets. They were made to be cute by this rich ancient race. And some long time ago, uh, a space yacht that these rich ancient race people, um, the space yacht that had several Ewoks on it, uh, crash lands on Endor, kills the ancient the the people. And the only thing alive that, that remains alive are these Ewoks. And there's one golden droid that helps them figure out how to build, <laughs> how to build their tree houses and everything. And so they're cute because they were bred to be cute. And they revere C-3PO because the thing that saved them centuries and generations ago was another droid. That's and brilliant. that's why it all fits together. And that's brilliant. And I personally presented that to George Lucas. And I said, this is great. It makes it all tie together. And George said, now the Ewoks are cute because they're cute. <laughs> and that was the end of that. And so that story never went anywhere and we never got it. Man, that sounds like a great idea. I just I thought, really oh, like that. that just fits. I like it all. And I, I yeah. liked that part. But oh, I, that's but, really good. But you know, it's George's teddy bears and he gets to do what he wants with them. And that, oh, that's and, fair. And you don't, you don't complain about that. You're like, the, in this sense, we authors are sort of like the, the daycare providers and the kids go home at the end of the day. They're not my kids. Yeah, and that's fair. And the Star Wars books that I write, I love them and I put everything I had into them and they're some of my, my favorite work and they sure got me a whole lot of fans, but uh, the copyright page says Lucasfilm or Disney now. I mean, that's not, that it, it's not my baby, it's, it's somebody else's. And when I see stuff from my books, when they're on, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of little stuff of mine that's been on the Clone Wars cartoons and in the Han Solo movie and in the uh, uh, Force Awakens and little things like that in, in Phantom uh, Menace. When I see that, you know, I don't get mad at it. I just go, cool, somebody read my books and they like parts of it. <laughs> awesome. 
Uh, well, we're getting close to the end of the show. Daniel, do you think that there's time to do a lightning round? Oh boy. I think there is. Now the only question is, is yeah. Is I wasn't prepped for this, but so I'm going to have That's to okay. That. Oh, so that's the exactly the intent. Basically, Krebs takes over and asks you random questions and you answer. He's been doing that all hour. I know. Well, just come, what comes to the top of your head? You don't have to overthink it. These are going to be random. They have nothing to probably do with you in, at all. You're, you're assuming I was thinking about the other answers, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you may not have, but that's okay. So uh, I think we have time for it. I, I mean, I honestly, I, I'm excited. I, I think we missed out on one of the greatest things in the universe, which would have been this amazing backstory to Ewoks, to be honest. Uh, I, I feel like we just got a, about it, so. we, we just got like a secret treasure out of yeah. this interview. Like I never saw that one coming. Yeah, because well, I mean, Ewoks, what, what you got was, was an idea that was rejected by Lucasfilm. So yeah. it's not that exciting. Nope, but. nope. Change approved. Change yes. approved. That is the origin of the Ewoks forevermore. I absolutely will teach my children <laughs> as they bounce on my knee. I will teach them that this is the origin it's of the, the Ewoks. apocryphal history of Ewoks. It's the apocryphal yes. history of the Ewoks. That is fantastic. Great. I love it. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll hand it over to you. Go for okay, it. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions. They're going to be fairly random for the most part. They'll have a few softballs in there. I just want you to give me the first answer that comes to your mind. Okay. 42. <laughs> that is the right answer. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. Here we go. Uh, Ready, set, go. What is your favorite color? Green. What is your least favorite color? Yellow. I saw that you had pets earlier. Do you? I saw that you have a cat. Do you have a dog? No. Have you ever had a dog? I like dogs, but I've never had one. Fair enough. Lots of cats. Uh, of, all, of all of your favorite television series that you've grown up loving your entire life, which one would you like to write for that you have not yet written for? Well, there aren't that many I haven't written for, so... Um... <laughs> uh johnny quest Ooh! Ooh like oh my one. gosh i did not see that that's a great answer um who is your favorite author besides you wow frank herbert well done and finally what is your stance on the 1983 sci-fi fantasy film crawl cool print cool pinwheel starships <laughs> My friend refers to the glaive as the uh, fiery starfish of doom. Uh, that is well done. Well done. Did you, did you see Kroll in theaters in 1983? Uh, Richard Thomas was in that, wasn't he? Richard Thomas. No, that was, no, that was, no. that was a galaxy. That battle was, that was be battle. battle beyond the stars. Yes. Yeah. That was battle beyond the stars. Um, I remember the pinwheel ships in Kroll. I don't remember anything else yeah. about it, but close it was not a ship it was a it was a weapon but it did fly through space in the intro okay well so there is that it, it left a huge huge impression on me as you can tell just completely like forgettable one star the poster was torn all right cool well <laughs> there we are uh kevin anderson thank you so very much for being on the show today uh, your body of work is immense and incredible and i am thrilled to be one of the many people who will be running out to buy books one and two to go with their copy of book three so that I can enjoy the entirety and the, and the, uh, the beauty, the intensity of the Wake the Dragon trilogy. Thank you so very much for being here today. Well, and I, I want to jump in because we want to mention this because I will be at LTUE oh, yes. in 
in a couple of weeks and I will be signing some books there. And for the people who want signed books and they can't get there, uh, just in case you want to, my, my own web store is called Wordfire Shop, like Words on Fire Shop. And I have a Gods and Dragons and a bunch of my other books there. Just I sign them, I sell them at cover price and they're there. So anybody wants to sign a book, you can go there. Otherwise, at your favorite bookstore. And just as a clear reminder, uh, when is L2E, by the way, that is uh, the life, life, the universe, and everything, a writer's uh, convention, which is amazing. That's yeah, a Provo, it Utah. It's Provo. the 17th through the 19th of February. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you will be there. That is amazing. What a wonderful opportunity. I hope I get a chance to meet you in person, sir. You're an incredible author. And thank you for taking time out to be on our show. All right. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, folks, if you haven't already read a Kevin J. Anderson book, it is well worth the read, uh, both in the Dune universe, Star Wars, uh, and the various other universes uh, Kevin has uh, mentioned. But definitely go out and pick up this book series. It is an epic fantasy worth your time. And, and, it's, finished. and it's, it's finished. And it's finished. That's the best it's part. Done. It's done. finished. It's not one of those, man, here's the first book. I got to wait, you know, a couple years or a de half a decade before I can finish it. It's done. Go out, pick up all three books. And again, thank you for coming on the show. And with that said, folks, we'll catch you next time. And crawlers, tell your story, whatever it may be. And whether you are writing a, a single book for your favorite as your favorite fan fiction or you're writing a 14 book series, always remember to be epic and don't suck. Remember, the force will be with you always.